0: tonight what I want to do is present us a narrative of the fullest expression of what does it mean that we worship God and how God wants to be worshipped. Um, and so to begin, I just want to begin with a clip from one of my favorite movies of all time. Let my people go, slaves are mine, Their lives are mine. All that they own is mine. I do not know your God, nor will I let Israel go. Who are you to make their lives bitter in hard bondage? Men shall be ruled by law, not by the will of other men. Who is this God that I should let your people go? Aaron, cast down my staff before Pharaoh he may see the power of God. In this you shall know that the Lord is God. Closer look at the Exodus account. Um, This pivotal event of God intervening in history, specifically for the people of Israel, to draw them out of slavery in Egypt. And how this shapes our understanding of what it means to worship God. Um, When we encounter Jesus, we come to see, as we worship, So we believe and so we live. So uh, at the top you bring your handout here, you have a quote from um, Pope Benedict Emeritus XVI. But he wrote this in his encyclical Deus Caritas S. Being Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, but the encounter with an event a person which gives life a new hope in a decisive direction. If you've met a Catholic that has you just, since they view and live in the world in a different plane, or if you're approaching the Catholic faith and you're like, I just don't understand, or there's things that i still have yet to like say, how do they see it that way? you might be coming to this experience that Catholic Christianity, as well as just Christianity in general in its truest form, is more than just a set of beliefs. It truly is a way to see and live in the world as I sent out that video. It is a worldview that incorporates two things in life, both belief, but then that's followed up by action And those two things cannot be separated. It's a worldview in which belief is informing action. And if you have one without the other, you have a broken system. And so my aim this evening is to really paint the picture of how worship, belief, and living go hand in hand with each other. Through this ancient phrase in the church... Lex orandi, Lex credendi, Lex Vivendi. So the strict Latin is the law of worship, the law of belief, the law of living. Um, but it can sum up the Catholic worldview and the approach to uh, worship. But, so we'll take it tonight as just the dictate to say, as we worship, so we believe, and so we live. Benedict Sixteenth highlights what's at the heart of the Christian experience. And that's the encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. When one encounters Christ, he encounters God himself. Not just another man or a religious sage or a guru, a good teacher and a good man, you encounter God himself. So if we just figure in the democracy of the dead, as well as natural human experience. Humans don't worship anything inferior to themselves. All of us, whether it's God, whether it's fame, whether it's power, whether it's whatever have you, sports, we worship what we hold in highest value. So globally speaking, that's how humans have always approached worship of something. To Encounter Jesus is to encounter the one true God. It's impossible for him to be God. And also be just God among many. There can only be one God. And when we encounter the person of Jesus who reveals his father to us. We encounter the one true God. And this God of history continually reveals himself to the world. And we've kind of covered that brief overview in the great story from the beginning of creation, making covenants to the fulfillment of all things in the person of Jesus Christ to an ultimate completion to bring the world to be made new again, whole, and just as it should be. So what I want you to do right now is on that front page of the handout, you have kind of a no wonder, learn chart. We're going to skip the learn part. Um, But I just want you to take a few minutes to jot down a few notes. What do you know about the Exodus? So you could write down, or the story of Moses, too. Like, let's broaden it. The Exodus, Moses. um, And then, what do you wonder? So that first movie clip that we had, uh, that's Moses. Um, So... It's okay if you're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. That's okay, because that's what tonight's about. But just take down a few moments to, on that one column, write down. Just, it doesn't have to be extensive, but what do you know about the Exodus account? What do you know about Moses? And then, if you have any questions about that, what, what do you wonder about the Passover and the Exodus? So if you're still writing, that's okay. Okay. Um up here and sorry it's a little small but it's in your handout on page 2 so if you want to flip to page 2 at the top there it kind of gives you just a brief overview of the timeline of key events in the Exodus so pharaoh demands that every newborn Hebrew born must be drowned in the Nile River they're getting too populated they're becoming too strong he's worried about Egyptian power so We need to kill them off. Moses' mother spares him by sending him down the river in secret in a basket where he's rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. That's where he gets his name. I drew him out of the water. That's what Moses means. Moses is then raised in Pharaoh's court, yet he learns of his Hebrew roots and kills an Egyptian mistreating and beating a Hebrew slave. Moses then has to go flee from Egypt for his life. As he flees and he's shepherding in the wilderness, he encounters God in the burning bush, who reveals his name to him I am who I am, and that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob, who would be Moses' ancestors as being a true Hebrew. And God Promises to fulfill his promise of the covenant he made with Moses' ancestors and sends Moses back to Egypt. God sends him to tell Pharaoh, Let my people go. God does not act contrary to free human will, and thus, through mighty works and ten plagues, he breaks the will of Pharaoh, who allows the Israelites to go forth. The Hebrews. Leave Egypt after the parting of the Red Sea and go forth into the wilderness, where they soon forget what God had done and complain against God and Moses. Then they wander for 40 days to Mount Sinai, where God establishes a covenant with the Hebrews, gives them the Ten Commandments, where He instructs them on how to live a good and holy life. And then, as they prepare to take the promised land, they send spies into the land, and based on the report of the spies, they become afraid. God, because of their hesitancy, makes them spend 40 more years in the desert to purify them and teach them the meaning of trusting God. After 40 years, the Israelites are finally spiritually and physically ready to enter and conquer the promised land. So real quick, brief overview gives you a good uh, sense of what's happening all the way from Exodus to Deuteronomy and a really short seven point outline. In here, we have the definition of covenant, because this is at the heart of what this whole project is about, this covenant program, as Vern so eloquently elaborated for us um, a few weeks ago, how God has this saving plan. He's going to work through individuals and a nation and a people to be and bring the world to salvation, this covenant program, a divine human bond predicated on God's faithful promises and man's willing obedience, providing the framework by which God's program, his desires, will, and kingdom moves forward towards its goal, towards making the world just as it ought to be in true justice. So that's at the heart of what God's doing. He wants to fulfill the promises that he had made to Abraham and from the beginning of time to establish the world in order and to give his creation the best life that it can in union with him. Before we move any further, brainstorm here on the bottom of page two. How many different definitions can you think for the words of worship and serve? So take another few minutes just to write down as many definitions as you can. And then uh, here in just a few minutes, we're going to come back to them. So um, how many different ways can you use the word worship in definition? And then how many ways can you use the word serve in definition? And as you round out your list, um, I if you, you're still going, keep on going. Um, but if you've reached the end of your list, uh, if you want to open up your Bible, if you brought one, or um, there's, I brought around copies of the New American Bible. Um, so if, or just a Bible, it's the translation, New American Bible. Um, if you want to go ahead and open up to Exodus Three. That's where we're going to begin our exploration tonight. We got any wordsmiths still making definitions? No? Okay. So, uh, beginning with Exodus 3-7, just to give us context, if you kind of look at the headings, we're actually when Moses is encountering the burning bush. So he's speaking with God at this part. So Moses is interacting and encountering God. And God is giving him his mission. And so in verse 7, we have the Lord saying, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of, a, bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of Canaan, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, And he said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So uh, I think I just heard the words are a little bit different. I I, I am reading. I couldn't keep up because it was different. Yeah, sorry. I should have grabbed one of those NAB translations. (laughs) I'm reading from um, the ESV. Um, I Thank you. I will grab that. This one says, w- you will worship God. Worship God. And we're already hitting that. Do you hear in verse 11? So on here, we're answering the question of the purpose of the exodus. So in this section of scripture, these few verses, we encounter God laying out, what is the point of bringing the Israelites out of Egypt? So on the top of your handout on page three, You have the purpose of the Exodus, but in verse 8, he's going to give the promised land to the Hebrews. And then he's going to establish service or worship to God on this mountain which Moses stands. So in my ESV, as well as the RSV, it says, You shall serve God on this mountain. And the NAB here, does it say worship? Does everyone say worship? Because, mm-hmm. like, there's two different NAB translations. Yeah, this one says we worship God on this very night. My serve. Serve, yeah. Uh, so um, let's clear that up right now. <laughs> why, why two different words, worship, serve, in our daily context? Wouldn't you say that they're two very different words? Mm-hmm. Like, if you looked at the definitions that you wrote down right now, do those two different kind of... Do they have any similarities between those two? Just look at your list and you're like... No. Mm-hmm. Most most people today would not see a connection between why do we say serve in this translation versus worship in here. Well, at the top of page three there, we get to the heart of it. The word liturgy, which sometimes the mass is called, or if you're an Eastern Catholic, it's the divine liturgy. And that word is derived from a Greek phrase of how they would describe worship there. So you see that in the ancient Greek. Liturgia, which literally means work For the people, it's a literal translation of the two words, litos and ergos, or public service. So from the beginning of Christianity, as well as in antiquity, this service, the word that they used for worship, was service due to God. And so that's why in our translations of scripture, we can use simultaneously, as we've encountered, worship, you will worship me on this mountain, and you will serve me on this mountain. So God outlines the plan for the Exodus. I'm going to give you the promised land, and then I'm going to establish true worship of the one true God. You have been among all these false gods in Egypt, and I myself will show you how God is to be worshipped. And this call to worship is brought to its fullness for the first time in Exodus 7. So if you want to go ahead and flip to Exodus 7. Moses is back in Egypt at this point in the book of Exodus. Him and God are speaking. In verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. And then skipping down to verse 16, and you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Uh, let me get back to the NAB just so I don't cause confusion. Say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you with this message. Let my people go to worship me in the desert. But as yet, you have not listened. And then Moses, through God's power working in him and through the instrument of his staff, turns the Nile River into blood. So again, some translations of the Bible will say, as it says here, that they may go serve me or worship me in the wilderness. And so Moses is sent with this message, let my people go so that they may serve me. And this is the Lord's words to Pharaoh. And then that call to service or worship is repeated four other times between Moses and Pharaoh as we read throughout the account of the Exodus. And In these interactions from them, we can see how God is revealing to us what it means to worship God. And so on page three here, I'm going to break you guys kind of into some group work. We're going to look at a couple of different passages. Why not you just kind of read through the passage and then talk. What is Pharaoh saying? What's his demands? What's Moses' rebuttal to him? So Moses is going to go with a message. Pharaoh's going to say, nope, here's how it's going to be, or here's how it's going to be, and Moses is going to say, nope, here's actually how it's going to be. What's Pharaoh's compromise? So there's going to be some times in these accounts where Moses goes and says, let us go do this. Pharaoh says, no, you can't do that. How about this? And then take a moment to just draw out what do you think this is telling us about what it means to worship the one true God. And then we're going to come together as a group and we're going to just walk through the three different accounts. Um, Let's see. Can I have these two tables? Take Exodus 8, verses 20 to 30. So that's one account. We're going to see Pharaoh and Moses having a dialogue about what God is asking the Israelites to do. And then I want these two tables right here to look at Exodus 10, verses 3 through 11, 16 to 18, and then verse 20. I can read that slower if you need me to. And then... Zach Taylor, if you join this table, and if you guys would look at Exodus 10, 24 to 29, and then skipping ahead to chapter 12, verses 31 to 32, because you get the in-cap story. So we skip some chapters to reach the conclusion of that dialogue. Any questions? Have I explained everything well enough? All right. Um, on the next page, you have a whole blank table. Um, I don't know why I included that in there, because I was nice and put like my compiled notes. But go ahead if you have anything that strikes you and that blank one to add. But on the last page of your packets, that's why I told you don't thumb through it because you would miss, like, ruin the purpose of this exercise if you had everything laid out for you, okay? So that's why I was, like, very adamant. Don't thumb through this. Um, but on the back there, you have kind of the um, table that I was working through. Mm-hmm. So those who are working on XDIS 8, so we can see from this account, um, if we go back and read, but Pharaoh says, OK, you've come to me with this request. Go to sacrifice God within the land of Egypt. And then Moses like, no, we can't because our worship is countercultural. It's abhorrent to the Egyptians and they'll stone us. We have to go out into the wilderness. And then Pharaoh says, OK, go serve, sacrifice, provided that you don't go too far from me, because at this point, And if we maybe read, and we're getting a snapshot from um, this group, that we can see that Pharaoh's kind of worried. You're not actually going to worship. You're just trying to get away. Like, break slavery by using this excuse. And so that's why he says, you can go and worship, provided you don't go too far from me. So don't get out of my eyesight. And what this section from Exodus is telling us about the nature of worship. It demands its own interior, Chad put it, exterior space, but it demands its own space. It can't be confined by the nature of the current times and situations. And then we also see that the world conspires against the freedom to worship God as he asks. So Pharaoh, an symbol of the world, says, no, you have to do it like this. And Moses is saying, no, the true worship of God demands its own space. God dictates where we are to worship and how we are to worship. Okay, uh, so the next group, and so especially if we're reading this in context of what's actually taking place at the current time, who would be involved in Egyptian worship, do you think? Would everybody? But this is kind of where many people think like Christianity, Catholicism is all about the patriarchy. right? You can see at the core, worship of God is not just for men. The Egyptians, it would have been just the men that are allowed to worship. That's why Pharaoh says, just you men, go. But Moses saying, no, the worship of God demands all of us. We all have a part to play in the worship of God. All right, so then the next section... What was Pharaoh's demands? Yeah. You got to leave the animals. And Moses says what? Going uh, to take everything right there. And then what was eventually? But yeah, it, that's an important wolf. Uh, so then what's Pharaoh's compromise? Yeah, go, don't come back get out of here because in between we skip, there's here, so in between this verse and then uh, where it picks up where they got it in 12, 31, and 32 there's the Passover the plague of the firstborn um, where all the firstborn Egyptians die and yeah, he's like, get out of here, you've all been enough trouble, go I don't want to see your faces anymore, but then he turns his it uh, kind of turns it to attention, and then we get them going to the Red Sea to pursue them. But is it? down here, just kind of at the heart of it, the worship of God employs not just words or our ideas, employs our good and possessions. It is God himself that tells us what is to be offered in worship, which gets to the point of why do we got to take everything? Well, because God is going to ask of us, what he wants of us so all of our goods all of our being is available to bring him glory and then it highlights to the nature of worship of god is not a merely transactional not just something we do but it's an actual exchange of persons lord here's all that i have take it as you will and he gives us his fidelity his promises and his blessings Israel departs not in order to be a people like other nations, but it departs in order to truly serve and worship God with all of its being. So they get sent out with this whole purpose. On page 4, a quote from Benedict Sixteenth in his... Um, non-papal named Joseph Ratzinger, from The Spirit of the Liturgy. And so he has a section in this book where he walks through what is at the heart of the Mass, the liturgy. And he recounts why the Passover event is brought new in the Mass but then why it's so important for us and how it informs our lives. So we're circling back to what does this phrase lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi" mean for us? What's at the heart of it? And so he writes in the spirit of the liturgy, a people without a common rule of law cannot live. It destroys itself in anarchy, which is a parody of freedom, its exaltation to the point of abolition. When every man lives without law, every man lives without freedom. Law without a foundation in morality becomes injustice. When morality and law do not originate in a Godward perspective, they degrade man because they rob him of his highest measure and his highest capacity. Deprive him of any vision of the infinite and eternal. This seeming liberation subjects him to the dictatorship of the ruling majority to shifting human standards, which inevitably end up doing him violence. So in that first clip there, what's Moses say, if you remember, man should be ruled by law, not the will of another man. But for the Egyptians, the will of Pharaoh was law. But he's pointing to something higher. So he's speaking on the nature of this quote. God gives the Israelites this worldview of worship because if they don't have a proper understanding of what it means to worship God, then having land is of no value. They could receive the promised land, but if they don't actually know how to use it properly, then what value is it? So just think about all of us growing up. If you had a sibling that'd come in and destroy your room, what's the purpose of having your own room without having rules to keep it in proper order. Or like Father Dewar and I were just talking last night with our CCD kids. If you don't have the game of basketball without rules, then what is it? Well, it's not basketball, it's chaos. And so God brings the Israelites out of Egypt and teaches them true worship, how to be in relationship with him in order that he can prime them for reception of a just way of life, which is given in the Ten Commandments. And those Ten Commandments are meant to be the guide rail to have a flourishing life within the promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey, paradise on earth. And he makes a covenant with them that's lived out by the worship of God. And from this worship, following after his plan for a full and joyous life. So, of no use. It only becomes a true good, a real gift, a promise fulfilled, when it is a place where God reigns. Which at the top of our quote, that's what it gets to. If we don't have a people, a place, where God is held in highest esteem, then we become subject to just man's own will and the shifting nature of our own thoughts. So we must put our law and place it within the context of God's words and how he has revealed himself and how he wants us to relate to him. People without a common rule of law cannot live, destroys itself in anarchy. And if we look throughout all the history and the Old Testament, when Israel fails to worship God, as he has asked, and to place the true heart of their worship in him and not in their own designs, as Pharaoh was saying, because they creep into this. They creep in, oh, we're going to do this in that way because it fits us better than what God has asked. Or God has asked us to do this, but uh, that's a little hard. I'm going to do it my own way. Then they turn away from God and worship false gods. Powers and values of this world, and then their freedom, too, collapses. So we could look at multiple accounts, and we probably will. We could revisit them, revisit them. But us too, when we fall away from the right worship of God, we actually aren't being led into freedom. We are being led into slavery, which is why the story. Of God's intervention in the world and the exodus plays out for us when we hearken back to that first quote that we begin with tonight, that at the heart of Christianity is the encounter with a person who gives our life a new direction, shows us how we are to live and walk in our lives. This person of Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And his exodus from this world on the cross Brings us freedom from the slavery of sin. Worship that is of the right cult. So have you ever heard the word cult? Right? It comes from the actual understanding of like to cultivate, to bring about. And so it's actually a word that we can use, like the nature of worship or how we worship. Now we just think of the crazy people. Uh, that do X, Y, Z, but like the true heart of the word cult, why we call cults is because the nature of their worship, the nature of their belief, and the nature of their living. But true worship that God has ordained and then brought to its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ and laying down the institution of the mass and Christian living in his church is essential for the right kind of human existence in the world. So we mentioned in that point seven of the timeline of the Exodus, it took them 40 years to actually figure out what God was doing in the world and doing in their lives so that they're ready to actually enter into the Promised Land. They had wandered in the desert for 40 years. The Israelites did after they... Their hearts were shaken. They were afraid. And from that, there's a re-ratification ceremony of the covenant where we get the first creed of God's people. And it's recaptured in Deuteronomy 6. And it goes, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God the Lord alone. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart and with your whole being and with your whole strength. Take to heart these words which I command you today. Keep repeating them to your children. Recite them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them on your arm as a sign and let them be as a pendant on your forehead. Write them on your doorposts of your houses and on your gates. So that creedal statement, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Therefore you shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart and with your whole being and with your whole strength. It may be reminiscent of what Jesus says, if you remember in the Gospels, when he's asked what's the greatest commandment? He says exactly that. And I'm the butcher of the word because sometimes I can't talk, but phylacteries, is that how you say that word? Phylacteries, if you're like in the tassels on the Pharisees, when you like talk, when you hear that in scripture, if you've ever heard those words, you're like, I have no clue what those are. Well, they took to heart these words from Deuteronomy and those devout Jews would actually put in a little box this scripture verse and have it as like a headband and they would write it and put it on their tassels because just as we've heard, what God want them to remember? There is one God and you shall worship him alone. And so when it talks about that in the Gospels, that's what they're actually doing. They put that verse in a box in their head so it's always on their mind and it's in all their actions as it's hanging down from their hands. And this is the foundation of like our I believe statements, our creedal statements. It's what separated Israel from the other nations, and then it it separates us from all other religions. On the end of that page, we have paragraph 170 from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, where it says, we do not believe in formulas, but in those realities they express talking about creeds which faith allows us to touch the believers act of faith does not terminate in the preposition propositions but in the realities which they express all the same we do approach these realities with the help of formulations of the faith which permit us to express the faith and to hand it on to celebrate it in a community to assimilate it and live it on more and more We do not believe just in formulas. We're not just talking. I believe that the Denver Broncos won the Super Bowl in 1997 and 1998 as a mere fact. We're talking about the reality that the Broncos did win the Super Bowl. We could be there. We could participate in the joyous celebration. And I'm using a very vain example to talk about the creeds, but I think you get what I'm saying. When we say, as we would in the Mass. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and I believe the Nicene Creed. We're not just talking about statements that we're approaching as mere facts. We're expressing belief and then the realities that those have on our lives. And it's a bridge to life. So from being unbaptized to baptized, you profess faith through a creed or through a series of questions asking you to express faith. That's how the faith was originally passed down. You would train others to recite these statements when asked the question. And they weren't just statements. They were deeply held beliefs emanating from this encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. So from having no life to new life in baptism. It is also in the Mass a bridge between the liturgy of the Word where we hear what God has done in the world that brings us into full relationship with Him as we receive Him in the body, blood, soul, and divinity present in the Eucharist. And then it's the bridge between the worship of God and living a sure and fulfilling life. So we're able to express faith through a creed, but it's not just mere belief. It's then putting it into action in our lives. So that Latin phrase, as we worship, so we believe, so we live from God drawing the Israelites out for the express purpose of giving them a good land, but then establishing for them this true relationship with Him through worship and service of him so that they're not one people among many. They are a light to the nations. They're drawing all people back to God. And then that formed the way that they believed, the way that they saw the world. And from that, it shaped the way that they lived. They lived differently so that they could be a magnet to draw people back from God. And so, when we encounter the mass, and then when we think about the Catholic worldview, that's at the heart of it, is we have this encounter with Jesus. It shapes the way that we worship him because we learn that we must hold him in highest value. And he brings us to God the Father through the Holy Spirit. Shapes our belief, how we view the world. So like many of you might have questions right now. Why does the Catholic Church do this? Why does the Catholic Church believe this? Well, it stems back from that encounter with Jesus, which as we saw from the different ways that we can't compromise with the world, can't compromise with Pharaoh, that sometimes it's countercultural. It's not to the current dictates of today. But it is a way to have a truly fulfilling, just, and full way of life, which we put into action that brings other people back to the world. So I'm going to stop, see if there's any questions. But can I just get this clear? What, uh-huh. what we're saying is, is that worship encourages belief. Is that what we are saying? Worship informs belief. Is, how, oh, I mean, worship informs belief. Informs belief. Um, there's much more to be said about that. Um, for example, like uh, when the question of is the Holy Spirit God was asked in the early church, mm-hmm. they actually pointed to like the baptism rite and said. And scripture, be like Uh Jesus said, baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And then Mm -hmm. those three persons. So if the Holy Spirit wasn't God, why would we invoke him in this act of worship, of baptism? Mm -hmm. And so it informs the belief, as well as encourages belief. So does that mean we get wisdom from worship? I would say so. Yeah. There's, there's an aspect to it. Like, Revelation from worship? hmm okay. I would say so, and then there's an aspect, too, of, like, we're encountering mysteries, those things that are not unknowable. So, like, we hear the word mysteries as modern, and we're thinking, like, unsolved mysteries, UFOs, aliens. But the the term and the concept of mystery, if we're putting in the context of, Um, antiquity, as well as within this worldview, it's that it's maybe something that I can't technically explain, but it's not unknowable. I'm encountering an invisible reality that's at the core of what it means to be in the world as God has made it. I might not be able to totally explain it, but it is knowable. Doesn't worship always include the active participation of God himself? And so he would be responding. It's initiating, maybe. That's how or, I would put or, 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 it. Or both, because yeah. it's recursive? Mm-hmm. Exodus, uh, Reditus. I'm not a Latin speaker, but um, that's, Ratzinger uses both those. A going out and then coming back. A going out and then coming back drawing us up into his life is another way to put it. So, tonight, kind of like high up in the clouds laying down like very theoretical concept of what is the nature of worship but it's important that we at least have this exposure to be, see that when we go and encounter the mass sure there's lots of people just doing things. We have father doing something, we have some readers doing something, we have some acolytes doing something, but this all takes place on this grand drama of this larger narrative of God drawing us back to himself, informing us how to have right relationship with him. And so we have to kind of lay that, like, you have to see it through the clouds of what's taking place. So then, when we come and approach the particularities of the mask, you can be like, "Oh, I see it now." So that's kind of like, and so as we go throughout the rest of the weeks, we're going to reveal that. We're going to go down to the particular. So we did the thirty thousand feet view, and as we're getting ready to land the plane on Easter Vigil, like we're going to slowly descend down, and you're going to see, "Oh, I see things clearer now." Thank you for listening to this great content from St. Peter Catholic Church. For more content, for other talks, for more information, please visit St. Peter Catholic Church, Lincoln, Nebraska, on Apple iTunes or on Podbean, and our parish website, stpeterlincoln.com. God bless you.